Hello, it's lovely to see you this morning. I hope you're doing all right. You doing okay? Yes, good. Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm uh, currently on a training course, so training in an area of counselling. And um, as part of that, uh, we get to do a project. We have to do a project and uh, research. And so I'm researching about midlife crisis. Um, yeah, I know, I know. It just seemed appropriate. And... Um, uh, it's all fine, except for the, the other day, um, Emma borrowed my computer and um, got to uh, see the tabs that were open and um, saw these tabs open. Ten signs that you're having a midlife crisis, how to survive your midlife crisis, and an article from The Guardian entitled, Help, I've Lived Over Half My Life. Um, so Emma saw this and, to be honest, it has been very nice to me the following week. So it's been great. So it's worked out well for me. So that's what's going on for me. Uh, and as Wendy said, we're, we're partway through our series on the book of Acts and uh, just seeing what God wants to speak to us through that. And uh, so far, we've seen how the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and really the, the first ever tsunami of love spills out from this sort of once frightened hunkered down little group of believers into suddenly the power of God breaking out and literally thousands and thousands of people being saved in a single day through the city of Jerusalem and multiple thousands of people coming to know him. And if you were here last week, then you'll have heard Wendy do a cracking preach on Acts 4 where Peter and John are looking at the, and dealing with the opposition that comes from outside the church. Uh, well, in today's passage, we get to see what life was like on the inside of the early church. And uh, really, it's a, a passage that demonstrates the radical value system of the kingdom of heaven. And above all else, it, it provokes us to live like we're citizens of a different kingdom. And that's really what I want us to get hold of this morning. But of course, th the good thing about working through a book of the Bible is that you end up looking at passages that you probably otherwise wouldn't pick out or choose to, to preach on. I remember when I was a teenager um, going into a Christian bookshop and they used to have these wall calendars um, and uh, it would be a photo with underneath a little encouraging verse, you know, and it might be like um, uh, the Colossians 3, like God says you're holy and dearly loved or something like that. And above it would be like a basket of kittens and stuff like that. Yeah, this isn't one of those kind of passages, all right? If it were to have a photo, it would be like a box of Rottweilers or something like that, okay? It's one of those kind of passages. So what I want us to do is I'm going to read through it. And what I'd like you to do is, as we go through, I'd like you to clock any sort of points that you could do with clarifying or questions that you might have about this slightly tricky passage. And then we'll see if what you've got down compares with what I've got down. Does that sound all right? So we're going to read it through together. So if you've got a Bible and want to read through with me, you're welcome to. But otherwise, it will come up on the screen. And we're going to read from Acts 4. We're going to pick it up at verse 31. So it says this. Uh, it says this. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. So the actual building is shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, there's a nickname, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, 
but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Ouch. Awkward moment. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. You bet it did. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down and died at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Marvellous. Very seeker-friendly passage for this morning. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them, look, here's some questions I've got about that passage, yeah? So what are the tricky points do you, did you pick up from there? And we'll see if they match up with what I've got. Turn to the person next to you. See what you want to ask. All right. How are you getting on? Do you, um, do you want to know the questions that I came up with? Because um, it's funny, because I read, I read through this passage, and I, I found that three questions came immediately to mind, okay? Three questions from this passage came immediately to mind. Uh, number one, what does it mean when it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own? Does that mean they didn't have any belongings? What does that mean? Number two, Ananias and Sapphira died. Wasn't that a bit harsh? And then number three, how come I always have to preach on passages like this? <laughs> that was what immediately sprung to mind. I remember years ago, we were working through the book of Galatians. Guess who got the passage on circumcision? Yeah, that's right. Yours, yours truly. The, the worst part was... As soon as I knew that's what I was speaking on, a whole load of really funny one-liners came to mind. None of them were appropriate to share. That was the worst part. So as you can imagine, I was pretty cut up about that. Um, anyway, I must behave. Moving on. As, moving on as we go through this. Oh, I've lost you now. Uh, as we go through this. As we go through this. Um, Let's try and tackle some of these tricky questions that come up, okay? Let's start with that first one, shall we? Uh, it's right there at the start of the passage. The, the actual verse reads this. All the believers in one heart, um, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. What does this mean? Does this mean that they didn't own any property? That they sort of put all their money and possessions into one sort of communal pot? Some people have argued that this was like an early form of communism where the state owns everything. Is, is that what's really going on? And how does it apply to you and I? You know, if I, 
If I own a field, should I then go and sell it and, you know, give the money to the church? Some of us here have got allotments. You know, is that what we are meant to do with our money? You know, it raises all these kinds of questions. Well, fortunately, one of the principles for interpreting the Bible is that we use other passages of Scripture that are more plain, more straightforward to help us with the trickier bits, okay? And, and the Bible has loads to say on the subject of money and possessions. But here are just a couple of verses for you that particularly talk about personal ownership. Uh, so later on in the Bible, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he gives specific instructions to wealthy Christians on how they should handle their wealth. So what we get from that is that they actually had their own personal wealth. Okay, So it wasn't just some communal pot. Not only that, but later in this very book that we're looking at, in Acts 16, we see that the early church meets in the home of Lydia, who was a, who was a wealthy Christian and probably had a large courtyard that the church first met in. So she s- still owned her own house. So clearly, Christians had their own homes. But perhaps the most compelling argument for why we shouldn't just sell everything and put it into a big communal pot comes from the very same passage we've been looking at. Because in verse 4 of chapter 5, which we read just a moment ago, when Peter challenges Ananias, he says this, Didn't it, meaning the property, belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, this was your land, and you chose to sell it, and what you did with the money was totally up to you. So it's not that the property now belongs to the church. It's your, your land, your money. You choose what you do with it. So sorry about that finance team. That would have really helped us with the finance budget. But we're going to have to just press on and believe what the Bible says about these things. So clearly in the New Testament, people had personal possessions and owned homes. So if it doesn't mean that you have to sell everything and give everything to the church, what does it mean? Well, here's, here's what I think. In verse 31, where we started out reading that passage, it says that people encountered God in an incredibly powerful way, so much so that the building shook. They were just filled with the presence of God. And the Bible seems to teach us that from this passage on that when we encounter God, two things happen. Number one, our grip on possessions weakens. And number two, our connection Did I say people? Our grip on possessions weakens and our connection to people strengthens. So we loosen our grip on the stuff and are drawn towards people. That's what's going on. Maybe you found that in your own life, that the closer you get to God, the less you're worried about all the stuff of life and the more you're concerned about the people in front of you. The bigger your heart gets towards them. You and I are citizens of heaven and therefore that means that All the stuff that surrounds us, all the material stuff is just temporary. You know, whether it's houses or cars or mobile phones, it it will all go. It will all fall apart at some stage. It will either rust or the screen will crack or in the case of my house, it will fall down. It's all temporary. But the person you see in front of you, they're eternal. And because of that, they matter to God. Because of that, they are of value. So we loosen our grip on the stuff because it's only temporary anyway. It's transitory. But the people around us, they do count. They do matter. It's quite possible that in this 
part of Acts, just after Pentecost, people had arrived for the, for the festival, for the Jewish festival, suddenly encountered God and become Christians, and now were wanting to stay on in the city in order to learn more about this new faith that they had. So quite possibly, people were prompted to sell bits of land or houses that they had in order to help fund it so that these new baby Christians could stay and learn and grow in their faith. God moved in the hearts of some of the believers to sell a field or a piece of jewelry or whatever it was that others might be enriched and learn. Because they realized that this thing is not as important as these people. Let me ask you this morning, how tight is your grip on things? Are there some possessions that are so precious to you that you could never be parted from it? I remember not long after I became a Christian, I, I made the kind of principal decision that really helped me is that I never wanted to have anything that was so precious that I wasn't willing to share it with others. Uh, and what I found is that that's helped me make sure that my grip on things isn't too tight. Although if you're the person that borrowed my hammer drill many years ago and never returned it, you should still feel bad. <laughs> so that's the, the grip on things loosens. But what about your connection to people? Do you feel like you're getting closer to others or is the drift starting to settle in? That's where I could do with a little bit of work. Now that I'm an expert on midlife crisis, I, I know that the stats show that the, the older you get, the fewer connections you have with other people. It sort of starts high in your, and towards the early, late teens and early 20s and then begins to tail off after that. People, it shouldn't be that way for Christians. We should be actively, consciously connecting with people, opening our lives up, sharing our lives with one another. So I'm having to deliberately focus on making sure that I engage with the people around me. I believe that that's what Luke's trying to say through this passage here. That the early church started to get people and possessions in the right order. They've been freed from the love of things so they can love people really well. This community I'm a part of is so much more valuable than any possession I own. Can you see how this is radically different to the materialistic, individualistic society that we live in? This is how we often read the Lord's Prayer up here on the screen. Give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my debts, as I also forgive my debtors, and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Some of us look at that and say, that sounds about right. Actually, let me put the real scripture alongside it. This is what the text actually says. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is saying, teaching his disciples how to pray a corporate prayer, not an individualistic prayer. He's saying, pray that God will give you as a family of believers everything that you corporately need rather than you individualistically. He's saying the Father will pour out blessing, but he'll do it into the community, not just into isolated individuals. Uh, let me try and illustrate what I mean. Um, a few months ago, I was sending uh, three of my children off to screen, and I've got these three, three youngest kids up on the screen here. I'm sending them off to school. And, um, and we've got a house full of teenagers, and uh, unsurprisingly, we, we were out of snacks that morning. If you've got teenagers, you'll be able to identify with that. So what I did is I, I looked around for some loose change that I could give them to buy some snacks in school. Uh, but there wasn't any loose change around. So what I did is I, I took out my wallet, wallet and uh, sifted through it. And um, in amongst all the wad of receipts, I actually found a note. And uh, so what I did is I handed the note to Anna, and I said, here you go. Here's some money for break time. It was a simple kind of everyday thing. 
What was going on, though? Well, Anna received, abundantly, I believed, uh, a gift from her father. But it wasn't just a gift for her. It was a gift for her blessing, but the blessing of her siblings, too. So my hope as a father was that, yes, she would be blessed by it, but she would also be blessed through the sharing of the gift. It was for her to enjoy, but also for her to enjoy sharing. To spend money on chocolates and Monster Munch and e-numbers that mum wouldn't approve of and all of that, just to go, go crazy and, and be, multi, but be incredibly blessed by it. The point's obvious, isn't it? The money wasn't just given to her. It was entrusted to her. Could it be that the Heavenly Father isn't just giving you stuff and money and possessions, but he's entrusting stuff for you? That part of our joy of receiving from him is then to be multiplied by the joy of sharing it with others. God is giving us our daily bread as a community, and the idea is that we share it amongst ourselves. I love it when the offering baskets go around and there's a little envelope in there with somebody's name on it. Because somebody wants to bless somebody else. That's the way it's meant to be. There's not meant to be needy people amongst us. Because God corporately will give us together everything that we need. And the quality of life we receive as a result will just increase. Because there will be this flow of finance and generosity around us as a church. That's what I believe Luke is driving at. And then what he does is he gives us two examples of, of how this was worked out. And he gives us one good example of how this generosity of spirit operates in the, in the church, in the early church. And he gives us one bad example of how this works in the early church. And no prizes for guessing that Ananias and Sapphira are the bad example of how this works out. Uh, but on the face of it, what I want us to notice is that Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas were all doing the same thing. So if you were a casual observer watching however this happened and watching them come down, I guess, to the front and lay some money down at the apostles' feet, it would have looked the same. There's, here's people bringing money. It might even have been that Ananias and Sapphira bought a chunk load more money down than Barnabas did. Maybe, you know, property in Jerusalem was worth a lot more than property in Cyprus. That's very likely. So they might have bought, you know, a mahusive gift of money and on the outside, it looks like they're doing the same thing. If anything, Ananias and Sapphira are the really good guys here. But of course, the Lord looks to the heart and not to the outward appearances. The difference was what was going on on the inside, not the externals. Ananias and Sapphira went wrong on so many different levels, bless them. Number one, they had their security in their money rather than in God. Their trust wasn't in God to provide, but rather their ability to hold back some of the money for a rainy day. Do you know, outside of God, the source of your security is also going to be the source of your greatest fear. So if ultimately your security is in your job, then your greatest fear will be in losing that job. Ultimately, if your security is in the love of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, then your greatest fear will be losing that love. And if, like Ananias and Sapphira, your ultimate security is in your savings, then your greatest fear will be of losing those savings. Or possibly God asking you to give away all of your savings. They were standing on shaky ground. Their security was in their money. Not only that, though, but they wanted people to think well of them. 
They wanted to look like they were more generous than they were. They wanted the emotional security that comes from people liking you and respecting you as a person. They wanted people to say nice things about them. Like the Pharisees, they were looking for the praises of men. And then if you put those two things together, you've got this yearning for financial security alongside the need to impress people. Well, that meant that they had to lie in order to keep up appearances. They'd sort of box themselves into a corner there. The only way to keep both their money and their reputation was to lie. And the result was hypocrisy. But with Barnabas, it was a different story. Uh, Encountering God frees him up to be more interested in people than he is in things. He joins uh, Paul in his missionary travels and gets to tell hundreds, thousands of people the good news about Jesus. He gets to connect with so many people. And that's because he has his security in God, not what people thought of him. We read later on in the New Testament that Barnabas actually falls out with Paul and challenges Paul about his attitude to a guy called John Mark. So Barnabas has enough security in his identity in God to challenge the Apostle Paul. That wasn't easy. But he knew who he was and whose he was. Because of that, he's able to live by his values, not by his popularity. As a result, he didn't need to lie because this is who I am. And the result? Well, the result was integrity. So where does this leave us? We've got two columns on the screen. They're left and right. What happens if you find that you're more in the left-hand column, if you're honest? Could you and I be suddenly struck down? like Ananias and Sapphira over our giving. Are we in danger here right now? Apparently on the last gift day, someone put some plastic toy coins uh, into the offering. According to the finance team, we've also received a number of shopping trolley tokens and a yellow balloon for some reason. I know of one guy who came to church for the very first time. Uh, He'd never stepped foot inside the church. And at the end, uh, one of the welcome team said to him, well, what what did you make of the the service today? And he said, well, uh, I really enjoyed the, the time of singing. Uh, I found the talk really interesting, but my favorite moment was was when they passed around the basket of free money. That was the best bit for me. Is is that guy in danger? The good news is, the good news is I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, We read in Psalm 103 that God doesn't punish us as our sins deserve. And the reason for that is we put our trust in Jesus, as Isaiah 53 talks about. So the punishment that was due to us is now on him. And as a result, we have peace. Even if we put plastic money in the offering or stolen PJ's hammer drill, there's grace for us, okay? And I've never heard of anything like this happening again. Personally, I think it was because it was at a critical stage in the life of the early church. The Holy Spirit moved in order to protect the church from an internal weakness. And my guess is that at the time, God decided that he was going to take Ananias and Sapphira out of the picture for their gra- out of grace towards them, not just the local church. And that if they stayed, then maybe they'd have ended up in even more of a mess. This fledgling church was in a vulnerable position, so Jesus moves in to protect his bride. But the point is, Jesus wasn't protecting his church from people holding back their money. Jesus was protecting his church from hypocrisy. That's a sobering thought. I look at the left-hand side and I think to myself, that could so easily be me. I think of the times when I've pretended to do something for somebody, sit patiently with them or whatever, and I'm doing it out of the kindness of my heart. When really what's going on is I want them to like me. 
Or I think of the times when I've come across as being really gentle and patient with people on a Sunday morning, the nice pastoral guy, and then gone home and lost my rag with my children. Hypocrisy is in my heart too. And it turns out that God takes these things very seriously. Yes, the, God, the Bible describes God as patient and kind and nurturing and loving and all those sorts of things. But it also describes him as a consuming fire. That there are some things that stir God to anger. You see, you can't love some things without hating others. If you love justice, you must also hate injustice. If you love peace, you must also hate war. And if God loves integrity, then he has to hate hypocrisy. And what's, after all, the biggest objection that most people have to Christians in the modern world? It's hypocrisy, isn't it? Christians who pretend to be morally upright and virtuous, but are in fact just as corrupt as everybody else around them. Tele-evangelists who weep into the cameras, persuading vulnerable people to give up their money. Organized religion which covers over the abuse of children. Pastors who preach purity from a platform while carrying on illicit affairs. And Christians who talk about a God of love but are actually just filled with bitterness and judgment towards everybody around them. God hates those things. Luke includes the story of Ananias and Sapphira because God wants us to know he hates hypocrisy. He wants us to lead lives that have fulfilled relationships, not just empty religion. Now, of course, we're all a work in progress, you and me both. You know, um, We haven't got everything sorted. The whole point of sanctification is that it's a process, but it's the trajectory of our lives that counts. It's okay to have mess in your life, as we say so often in this church. What's not okay is to pretend. And it's your right to have two or three close people in this church who know your worst secrets and still love you. That's why I have other elders helping keep me accountable on my emotional health and other things. That's why we make the church finances as transparent as we possibly can, and why Wendy stood here last week and very courageously and vulnerably shared about her fear of loneliness and how she was dealing with it. Because we want to lead open and transparent lives. So Luke's saying there's this bad example of Ananias and Sapphira who in secret kept everything, kept some of the money back for themselves. But it's not all bad news. And I want to close our time today by looking at some of the good news. Because Luke says, yes, there's a bad example, but also there's a good example in Barnabas. Um, Barnabas is a guy who's realized that how he defines wealth will ultimately define him. How you define wealth will define your life. And Barnabas has decided that true riches are to be found in relationships, not stuff. Whereas Ananias are looking for satisfaction and riches in having money and maintaining a good image. And so they love money and deceive people. Barnabas believes it's relationships that make us truly wealthy, and ultimately relationship with God himself. He knows that Jesus promises to be there and feed his flock. He knows that Jesus will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And so that means that he's free. He doesn't need to impress anyone anymore. And he uses money to love people. Money becomes a tool in his hands rather than the target of his life. A few weeks ago, I got the rare privilege uh, of meeting uh, this lady. She's going to come up on the screen, Marilyn Cook. And uh, I very much doubt you've heard of her. Uh, she runs a mission in South Africa. Uh, she hasn't written any books. She doesn't speak at conferences. And to be honest, her website could do with a bit of updating. Uh, she doesn't look like it from this picture, but she's actually in her 80s now. She's this frail little old lady. And I met her in a township three hours outside of the city where she runs a feeding program for the children of the town. Every week, 
she feeds over a thousand malnourished children. And we got to join her as she handed out food to these kids. In the school holidays, the children don't have the same access to food, so the numbers spike and they will feed this Christmas holidays 8,000 children a week. Her routine is to spend nine months of the year running a program and then three months of the year traveling to raise funds for that very same program. But get this, she's been doing this for 57 years. She's dedicated her whole adult life to blessing the poor of South Africa. Seven years ago, a drunk driver killed her husband and put her into, ho- and, and put her into hospital. And yet she decided to stay. She's one of the most joy-filled people I've ever met. She has completely loosened her grip on things and instead strengthened her connection to hundreds and then thousands of people. John Piper puts it like this. Christianity is not a matter of external conformity to religious expectations. It is a matter of internal liberty. It's not a matter of force and law. It's a matter of freedom and love. Being a Christian means being changed from the inside out so that you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. Here's the thing. Marilyn Cook hasn't missed out. Just like Barnabas, she's free. She knows who she is and who she is. She's been free from trying to impress anyone or manage a reputation. Her father has given her a 20-pound note, and she intends to have some fun with it. She's sharing it with thousands of hungry children each week. And I'm not suggesting that we all do the same as Marilyn and pack off to distant, distant places. We need people here who are going to generate the wealth that can then be distributed to those in need. But what I am saying is that we can live like free people now. Change from the inside. Free from managing an image, projecting a persona. Free to be known and know others. Free from clinging on to our savings and possessions. And free to use money to love people. That's the way we want to live, isn't it? Why don't we stand and pray together? As you heard during the talk, some people are already encountering God. Now's the time for us to. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. Sometimes it just helps us focus. I just felt like God speaks to me from a number of different people. Firstly, it's for those of you who maybe, maybe you find you've stumbled into church here and, and you would say, you wouldn't know this Jesus that we're talking about. You wouldn't say that you've got a relationship with him. And maybe for you this morning is that morning to loosen your grip on stuff, but instead run into his arms. And uh, I just invite you at the end, we've got a, a ministry team who are available, ready to pray and chat with you and would love to talk to you. So if that's you, I'd really encourage you to do that. But for the rest of us, I just felt there were a number of things God put his, wanted to put his finger on. For some of us here this morning, I think it's about finding security in our savings. Security in our assets, what we have, uh, what we've got in the bank. Equally too, for some of us, it's this morning about finding security in what we know. I feel like there are some of us here this morning where, if we're honest, our securities come from our intellect. And the Lord saying it's about who you know, not what you know. It's who you know, not what you know. And so for you this morning, it's time to loosen your grip 
on those things. The thing about gripping onto money is that if you hold on to money tight enough, sooner or later, it gets a hold of you. And actually can so often be just be rooted in fear. That's been my experience. And so if you know that this morning you want to loosen your grip on your savings, you say, God, I want to trust you, not the, the digits in my bank balance. If that's you, do you want to just be really courageous as people have opened, closed their eyes? Just raise a hand in the air. Just want to, just as a way, I'm not going to embarrass you anyway, but it's just a way of saying, God, I don't want to have my trust in my stuff and my savings. It's about who I know, what, not what I know or what I've got in the bank. Spirit of God, I, I declare right now you to be provided for by the God of the universe, not your savings. That everything is his and he chooses to provide for you and will provide for you for the rest of your life. I declare that over you in the name of Jesus. The second area I felt is that for some of us here, we realize that uh, it's our internal world that needs addressing. That we might have stuff together on the outside, we might hold down a good job and look like we know what we're doing, but actually our internal world is dry and empty and our connection with God has drifted and uh, for you this morning you, you want to focus on the internal world not the stuff that you do maybe you're a very busy person but it's coming from a place of hollowness inside if that's you again do you want to just a way of acknowledging that you're going to run back into God's arms I want to raise our arm in the air and just say God I'm coming back to you if you know this your internal world it might be that there are some things you need to confess to somebody to get to the the deck's cleared. We, we regularly do that here with one another at the King's Arms. We, we want to confess our sins to one another and know repentance. And if that's you, I'd encourage you, find a trustworthy person and tell them everything. Thank you, Father. And then lastly, I feel like there's, for some of us, um, if we're honest, we're leading an increasingly isolated life. I felt this very strongly. Um, where we're, we attend, but we're on the fringes of things. And uh, God is saying, I want you to grow in increasing connection to others, not increasing distance. I felt it was particularly for men, but it's women as, as applies to as well. But if that's you, if you know, I'm actually, my, my circle of friends is shrinking, not growing. If that's you, do you want to just raise a hand in the air? I'm putting my hand up for this one. I'm going to have to be deliberate and intentional, have lots of meetings and not so many friendships. If that's you, just raise your hand. Thank you, Father. So God, we want to say, we want to live lives of relational connection. I don't want to be a professional Christian, Lord. I, re I repent of that and turn away from that. I want, to, I want to be connected to my brothers and sisters, that you've saved me into a community. I'm not a solo Christian. I'm part of a family. We declare that over you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father.